Hey, Sanctus Church, good morning. So glad that you're joining us. You might be in Pickering or Bowmanville or Port Perry, maybe in Ajax or online, or you might be watching this days, months, or even years later. No matter who you are, where you're coming from, uh, you're most welcome today. We're back uh, in the book of Romans. This is our major series for the year. And it's been a few weeks, of course, since we've been in the book of Romans. So I wanna stop and I, I wanna just do a quick review. Paul, if you remember, if you were with us, started by telling us that the gospel is the only hope for humanity to deal with our separation from God, our separation from each other, our brokenness, our enslavement to sin. And he cried out these words. Here's how he began. Do you remember Romans 1.16? I am not ashamed of the gospel that is the good news because it's the power of God for salvation for anyone believes, first Jews, then non-Jews. But remember, he wasn't done The problem, he said, had to be addressed. The need for a savior had to be given. And why? Because the gospel's power then can be displayed. Paul, in chapter one, if you remember, it was uncomfortable, says all of humanity is under God's wrath because we've turned away from God. We're all under the dominion or the power or the influence of sin. In chapter two, remember, he addressed his own family, the religious Jewish community, and says, actually, we as Jews are no better than those non-Jews. And we're actually under God's wrath too because we actually have God's law, the Old Testament, but we keep breaking it. And and he basically said, he undermined so much in in Romans 2.11, and he said, for God does not show favoritism. Oh, we all love favoritism, especially if we're at the center of the favor thing. And he goes, nope. Paul, trying to get his Jewish audience to respond to the gospel, often required to help them see their need for the gospel, a need that actually they would not even sense that they had because they thought their religiosity took care of the sinful problem. And actually, it's the same for most of us. Our intelligence, our position, our many acts of kindness, our giving to charity, our religiosity, my spirituality, but I'm sincere. No, I'm a church member. My family are Christians. No, I've gone to Mecca. No, I've prayed at the Wailing Wall. No, I've been to so many yoga meditation retreats. And no, I'm I'm really mindful. I I have given up so much for others. I give to the United Way. I serve at a homeless shelter. I sponsor kids through World Vision. None of this, some of it's okay, but none of it moves God when it comes to salvation. It can't bridge the gap. Wealth, power, position, race, color, nationality, heritage, philosophy, education, religion, looks, fighting for justice, serving the, like, serving the poor, like fill in the blank. It will count for nothing when it comes to salvation because none of it's strong enough. Jews, non-Jews, right believing, wrong believing, the measuring rod's the same. Now, be- before Paul finishes with dealing with the sin issue, he chooses to talk to his own family again, the Jewish community. And in the last chapter, he undermined generations of understanding, prejudice, religious arrogance, ignorance, and bluntly said to his own family, we've all taken for granted God's love and his calling. Actually, we were supposed to introduce the whole non-Jewish world to the God that has loved us. But the bad news is we're no better than all of them. And actually, we look down on all of them and we avoid all of them. Story, he basically wrote, being a child of Abraham and either literally possessing the Old Testament or keeping part of the Old Testament somewhat consistently or even the act of circumcision, which is the physical sign of faith for for the Jews, it just doesn't cut it, no pun intended. Like, it just doesn't work. So, Paul, knowing what's going to happen at the beginning of chapter 3, responds, first of all, to three different criticisms about his statements 
that sort of writhe against the fabric religious understanding of the Jewish community. And it's like at this moment in chapter 3, we're listening in in a really difficult family uh, situation where people are offended, people are angry and confused. So stay with me because by the end of this, this moment, we all get uh, talked to, invited into things and challenged. Romans chapter 3 verse 1 reads like this. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in the act of circumcision? Well, much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. Listen, Paul says, look, I'm not saying that we don't have value as a Jewish community. We do. We're God's elect. We were chosen out of all the nations. We have the very words of God. Like one poet penned it like this. They and they alone among all of mankind received the transcripts of the eternal mind, were entrusted with his own engraved laws, and constituted guardians of his cause. Theirs were the prophets, and theirs was the priestly call, and theirs by birth the Savior of us all. Yes, Paul says, we have unimaginable privilege, but we also have immense responsibility. Paul is pleading with his community to see the tragedy that he in his former life and many of his friends and family actually focused only on the privilege and not on the responsibility. Well, then the second complaint would sort of go like this. Well, Paul, you're attacking God's promises to, to the Jewish community. How can you say that I, or we faithful Jews, cannot actually, uh, cannot be secure in the promises of God? And there are like so many of them. A and then another way of maybe thinking about this, one put it like this, does the failure of the Jewish community in the end actually ruin God's plans for the world? Here's how Paul sort of uh, outlines it. What if some that's Jews didn't have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every person be called a liar, as it's written in the Old Testament, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. God is God, Paul says. He's going to accomplish his will. Never underestimate that. But what he's saying to his own family is, you don't even know the God you think you know, and you don't understand what he's trying to do. It's almost like in the conversation, it's getting more tense. It's like they say back, well, fine, Paul. But you must see the dangers of your teaching. I mean, let's all sin more and more, and this grace thing you keep saying is going to cover all of it, right? Or, or another person sort of summarized it this way. If God's light shines brighter because of darkness, haven't we glorified God by more of our wrongdoing? Let me put it this way. Let's go sin like crazy and no grace, and God's going to be glorified as we really mess up. Here's how Paul talks about it. Verse 5, but if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? Th that God is unjust in bringing wrath on us? I'm just using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could ju God judge the world? Someone might argue if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases God's glory, why am I even condemned as a sinner? Why not say as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and some claim that we keep saying, let us do evil, that good may result. No, no, their condemnation is desert. No way, Paul says. How amazing that some of you would rationalize sin by thinking it brings God more glory. See, by being made right before God through grace and faith alone, it doesn't give license to sin. It should lead us to love God more, not lust more. Paul says, listen, let me summarize this for you. Let me summarize basically all of chapter 1 and chapter 2. 
and I'm going to do it in one sentence. And by the way, this is where we move out of the, the family conversation, and we're all included. Verse 9. What shall, we, what shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and non-Jews alike are all under, this is really important, sin. Okay, I'm going to repeat this again. All human beings are all under sin. Did you notice? He doesn't say sins, plural. He says sin. Sinful actions come from us because we are sinful. We're under the dynamic of sin. We're under the power of sin. We are actually slaves to sin. We're controlled by sin. See, here's where things get really close to home and very offensive. Everyone ready? We're not born good. We don't learn evil from family or society. It's nature, not nurture. We're born sinful. We're born with a bent towards the things God says no to. Here's how David wrote it in Psalm 51. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Almost all of Canadian culture, maybe you're listening from another nation, but he would say, that is totally wrong. No, no, that's totally right. Another said, if sin was the color blue, then every aspect of us would have a shade of blue. We're all infected with a radical corruption. We're morally ruined at our roots from the beginning. One, I love this, speaking to a 35-year veteran funeral director, talks about this, and this is what he said. He says, I've had about every single age, race, nationality, physical size, and religion represented on my coroner's table. When you cut a human being open and look inside, they all look the same. And let me assure you, <laughs> it is never pretty. If that's true physically of us, it's even more true morally and spiritually of us. There was a very famous Russian poet who put it like this, I don't know what the heart of a bad man looks like, but I know what the heart of a good man looks like, and it is terrible. All of us have sinned, all of us under the wrath of God, all of us condemned, all of us born sinful, all of us having a heart of sin, the most religious person, the most unreligious person, the most spiritual person, the most secular person, the most modern person, the most postmodern person, the kind person, the unkind person, the wicked and the kind and the righteous, and babies and children and teens and young adults and adults and those dying and those born and those in between. And before we can object and raise our hands and say, this is totally garbage and this is crap, and Paul goes, Ooh. verse 10, as it is written. <laughs> Paul is about to do this thing that was a time-honored tradition within the Jewish faith where he's going to string together a series of quotations from the Old Testament to make his case. It's almost like imagine if you're making a necklace of pearls maybe and, and he's going to string all of these together. Paul is about to quote the Old Testament multiple times. Six quotes from the Psalms, one from Ecclesiastes, one from the prophet Isaiah. Each scripture proving our condition, exposing character, conduct, and the cause of corruption. He simply says, we're all under the power or the universality of sin, and it produces unholy speech, violence, and we remove God. So here's how he starts. Everyone ready? There is no one righteous, verse 10, not even one. Our goodness 
is not based on what we think it should be based on or what we want. That conversation is measured and compared against one person, God, the unblemished one, the perfect one, the one who one of his names is holy, separate and without sin. There is not one person that is good enough, kind enough, consistent enough. All of us get the rudest awakening when we look up and we look at God and then we look back at ourselves. It's like, you ever had that experience where you are in front of a mirror and you actually take time and you actually see yourself and as you get older, this gets more and more interesting so you know what I'm talking about. You suddenly go, oh, that's me. That's right. Our thoughts, our motives, our actions, all of them exposed. There is no one who has lived, is living, or will live other than Jesus who is consistently and perfectly, ready, measured up. Paul wants every one of us to know that there's no back door, there's no exception. Paul keeps going, verse 11. There's no one who understands, and there's no one who really seeks God. Okay. Now, the word understands comes from the idea of puzzles. There's no one who can actually put all the pieces together. Another way of putting this is there's no one who can plumb the depths of God, his work, who he is. But then he goes even farther. It becomes more offensive and it actually offends people in church, let alone the average person just living their life. No one seeks God. And we're like, that is not true. That is, that is not. Some of you are like, I am doing that. Lots of people are looking, they're seeking, they're spiritual, they're mindful, they're, they're deeply religious. I mean, basically, eight out of ten people globally are fundamentally religious. Even atheists and agnostics are deeply seeking in some form. But then Paul would ask us, really seeking though? Uh, the question is, why are you seeking? To know God as he says, or to get something from God? Or, or to feel better about your life? or to get justified in your political or sexual or religious views. We honestly do not seek the true God or truth on his terms. That's why we end up inventing idols. That's why we invent religion. I get saved by what I do. That's why humanism, if we just do our own thing, we'll be okay. We seek a God or an experience that suits us and what we think God should be or should do. Or for example, when people hear, when Jesus says, I'm the only way to the Father, there's no, we go, nope, 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 that's absolutely right. See, no one's really seeking. Paul later again and again will say, see, <laughs> this is why God has to seek us. We'll never really seek him because we're spiritually dead. And by the way, if you're truly seeking, like legitimately seeking for real, you already know that God is calling you. It's only a matter of time before you embrace him because dead things don't search, living things do. Verse 12, all have turned away. They together have become worthless. There is no one who does good, <clears throat> not even one human being. Now, the word turned away, really important, it means to bend. In other words, human beings have bent away from God, and the result is we become worthless. Now, let me pause, because there's a lot of pain around this word. Worthless does not mean all human beings are garbage, nothing. You're a worm. No, no, no. The idea is that we actually miss what we were supposed to be, become. We are doing worthless things. See, the purpose of a human being is to know God and enjoy him forever and then know each other. But see, because we're born in sin, we become worthless and don't do that. And again, are you catching this? Paul is literally violating everything we've been taught since childhood. Most of what I'm saying, we have embraced the opposite. Some of you, many of you who are Christians, you've been in church for years 
And as I'm actually saying this, you're recoiling inside and you're saying, that's too extreme. That's too far. That's got to be, that Paul didn't understand what he was saying. That's too exaggerated. Paul, be careful what you say. I mean, this is not going to help people become Christians. Paul says, oh, no, no. There is no one who does good. Not even one of us. And you're like, no, nah, Paul, that's garbage. We all do good things. I mean, look around. Not everything's... Paul says, of course human beings do good things. Yes, of course. But listen, we don't do good things out of the right place. How many of our good works are about us? Or making us feel good? Or actually helping our platform or reputation? Or helping a cause that actually God wouldn't even support? Good works from a biblical standpoint are always about God and loving God. They're about this thing called worship. See, if you don't know God through Jesus, you can't love him. And if you don't love him, you can't worship him. And good works don't get you through the door to know God. Good works are the evidence you know him and it's how you love him and keep the relationship vibrant. No one under that definition who does not know Jesus does good works, not even one. And then he says, I'm not done. And we're like, we've got to be done. He's like, no, let me just keep giving you the Old Testament. Human beings, their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. We as human beings produce so much toxic stuff from our minds and our mouths. Paul says it truly smells like dead bodies and it's actually deadly like a cobra's bite. And if you look online, you see so much of what we see that's been produced. Yeah, it's an open grave. Yeah, it's full of lying. And it's dangerous. And actually, interestingly, a lot of people believe this is specifically talking about religions. All false worldviews and spiritualities and religions bring the kiss of death. One person put it like this. Religions of all sorts promise salvation, notice this, in exchange for deeds of service or sacrifice. Preaching a false religion is no better than convincing a cancer patient that aspirin is the substitute for what they should be doing. Paul says, you know, human beings, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. And we would go, yep, our language, our motives, our pride, our replacement with God, the way we treat other human beings. I mean, cursing and bitterness, unforgiveness, slander, gossip, the foulness in our mouth. Yeah, that, that's true. And then he says, oh, and by the way, human beings, their feet, they're swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark human beings' ways and the way of peace they do not know. I mean, this is our collective history as humans. We don't know peace at work. We don't know peace in our families. We don't know peace in our world. War, famine, death, rape, assault, abuse, drug, drugs, human trafficking, like just keep going. It's older now, but William Durant wrote a book called Lessons from History. And when he was writing this, he had did a calculation that in the 3,241 years of recorded history, only 268 years had no formal wars in them. Just look at Europe today. Look at Ukraine. Look at Russia. Look at Iran. Look at North Korea. And that's just one example. The mass school shootings. And by the way, <laughs> I know what happened. Some of us are like, well... I'm not involved in that stuff. I don't murder. I don't bring misery. Well, never forget that God not only sees the outside of us, he knows our heart and our minds. If I sat with you or you sat with me and I got to know everything you thought 
do you think you still wouldn't say, this is me? I mean, don't we as human beings regularly in our mind trap people and pretend to humiliate them in that fight? Oh, I wish I had said this thing. How many of us have used people we know sexually, which by the way is like assault? We debase, we, we murder, we hate. And, and never forget, Jesus taught that unrelenting anger is no different than murder. Our thoughts, of course, are the very ground in which the world ends up becoming a living hell for many, many other people. And it's just true. He says, oh, if you want to know the human condition, here's the summary. There's no fear of God before their eyes. The fear of God um, in the Bible is the beginning of all wisdom, but the fear has left our thinking. Paul says, look, I mean, that's just the deal. Jewish people, non-Jewish people, religious people, not religious people, sinful, separated, there are no excuses left. Paul then stops and sort of like sews up the argument by ending with the role of God's law. It's summarized in the Ten Commandments. God did not give the law to us knowing we could actually keep it. He gives it to us because he needs to reveal, of course, who he is. The law reveals his personality, his DNA, his wants. But deeper than that, he also gives it to us so we would be unmasked. That we would actually stop believing in our own hearts and stop believing in world systems that keep crying out, no, no, we are good and human beings are fine and there is hope within us. And if we just look deeper down and find our dreams, everything's going to be okay. We're not sinful. We're just sick. We just need a little bit more therapy. Now, see, the Bible, it's wrong. Education, politics, counseling, personal achievement, rights, money, power, sex. These things can solve all of our issues, the core of our issues. Some of these things, again, are not wrong, but they're not the thing that saves. God comes along and says, oh, you think you're okay? No, actually, you're blind, you're deaf, you're dead, and you're under wrath. Paul keeps going in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world will be held accountable to God. The law shows us the nature of God. The law shows us our sin. It defines what sin is and then also shows us that we keep doing it. The law shows us how far and separated we are from God. I mean, just look at the Ten Commandments. Just look at the teaching of Jesus. And ask, do you match up? Do I match up? The answer, of course, is no. Consistently, absolutely not. No one, not even one of us. Actually, we are silenced by the damning evidence and we are accountable. I love when one person said, the image here that's being used is judicial. So like in a courtroom, we are to picture in this moment the defendant closing his or her mouth with nothing left to say in defense after the prosecuting attorney has finished the case. The defendant suddenly realizes, recognizes, that he or she is at the mercy of the judge, and the judge is God, and he's about to pronounce sentence. And we can't fight it, because it's true. Therefore, verse 20, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law, Rather, through the law, we become conscious, aware, defined of sin. No one can be saved by obeying the law because we can't keep it perfectly and consistently. Now, 2,000 years ago, a lot of people in the Jewish community actually believed that just by literally having 
the word of God in their presence was enough to save them. To, to put it in a Christian way, it's like, well, I own a Bible. I've got version on my phone or I have a paper Bible. So I have it. So I'm saved. Other people say, no, 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 that's not enough. You, you, can't, you can't just have it. You have to obey it. And, and he, Paul comes along and says, it doesn't matter about your position or your performance or what you possess. You can't be saved by having the law, knowing the law or obeying the law because actually you can't do it perfectly consistently. And we're actually not saved by what we do, but the law shows us one thing. It shows us our sin, shows us our separation. It shows us our need for an external help called Savior. We become conscious of our sin by reading the law. That's why so many people don't want to read the law. Martin Luther, the great reformer, put it like this. The principal point of the law in true Christian theology is to make people not better, <laughs> but worse. That is to say, to show them their sin. So as humans, we would be humbled, terrified, bruised, and broken, but by these means be driven to seek comfort, and so come to that blessed Christ. I mean, thank God for His law. Thank God for His relentless, loving confrontation of our problem. He didn't have to do it, but He did it because He's love. Okay, <clears throat> what's the take-home? Well, there's one major item for all of us listening or watching right now. <clears throat> Christian or not, God is speaking right now, and the call is to come to grips with the reality of sin. Without this understanding, unless we really see the world, our family, our friends, everything through the lens of Romans 3, we'll actually miss what God's trying to say and actually end up in a bad place. One person penned it like this. We can easily miss the precise wording of verse 9 and its significance. Paul does not say all people commit sins, as if doing things contrary to God is just an occasional problem we all struggle with. Nor did he even say that all people are sinners, suggesting that sin is a real significant problem. Rather, he says, all people are, ready, under sin. Paul uses the kind of language to speak of a situation of domination and slavery. For Paul then, for God then, because God is inspiring Paul, the human plight is not that people commit sins or even that we are in the habit of committing sins. The problem is that people are helpless prisoners and slaves of sin. Why does this matter? Why is this important? Mainly because of our understanding of someone's problem or a problem dictates how we come up with a solution or answer. So he writes, Marxists, for example, believe that the basic human problem is unequal distribution of wealth. The solution is to exert state control over the economy so there will be no more rich and poor. By contrast, many great philosophers and moral teachers in history of the world have been convinced the basic problem with human beings is that they are ignorant. What is the solution to ignorance? Oh, it's knowledge. That is, teach people and they will be made into better people and the world's problems will disappear the more educated you become. This almost mystical belief in knowledge it finds itself everywhere in society. All sorts of political programs are based on this assumption. For example, he writes in his time, 
there's been a ton of advertising encouraging children not to smoke in the United States. The assumption is clear. Teach children how foolish and dangerous it is to smoke, and they'll never start, smoke, they'll never start smoking. But if Paul is right, and he is, by the way, the problem, to pursue the analogy, is not that children are tempted to smoke. The problem is that many children are part of an environment in which peer pressure will lead them to smoke. They may actually acknowledge smoking is bad. You don't really want to start. It could kill you. But they don't have the ability to resist the pressure. In other words, they're enslaved to the environment of pressure. This is what Paul is saying. This is what the Bible is saying. This is what God is saying, he writes. This is the analysis of the human predicament. People by nature are addicted to sin. They're imprisoned under sin. They're unable to free themselves by anything that they can do. Knowledge that, so knowledge then is important, but not ultimately freeing. I mean, that's why God sent a, did not send a teacher or a politician, but a liberator who set us free from our sins. Teaching, of course, is a good thing, but we, can, we need to understand that this can never be by itself the ultimate solution to a person's problem or the problems of the world. And let me just add this. I'm going to go farther than this. It's the same with therapy. Do I believe in therapy? Yes. Is it important? Absolutely. Have I done it? Multiple times. But there is now this mystical understanding in our culture of therapy that if we all get therapy, guess what? We're going to solve all the world's problems. No, we will not because... Therapy, just like teaching, just like distribution, doesn't deal with the radical corruption of someone at their core. It's a much deeper issue, and it needs a, it needs a much deeper answer. So, for many of you that are joining us today who are not Christians, simple. <laughs> Whether you're maybe from another faith, uh, like a Muslim, a Hindu, a, a Buddhist, maybe you're spiritual, uh, maybe you're an agnostic, an atheist. Let me just say this to you. You need, just like I need, liberation. Not more money, not more sex, not more power, not more friendships, not a spouse, not more education, not more meditation, not more religion, not more rights or self-expression. You need liberation. I love um, this by a guy named Greg Johnson. This is so powerful. Religion says, get back in your closet, lock the door, you're unclean. The world says, come out of your closet, embrace everything about yourself, you're not defective. The gospel says, come out and bask in the love of Jesus for sinners like us. In Jesus, we can be defective and clean. In Jesus, we can be justified, declared right before God, and still be a sinner. Thank you, Jesus. See, here's the invitation. The invitation is to actually be offended, but then understand the offense is not to humiliate, it's to heal and humble. Acknowledge the situation, realize the helplessness we're in, and then be driven to the one person who actually did it okay, did it right, did it perfectly, Jesus. That's why Paul, as a very educated, brilliant philosopher, theologian, world shaper, said these simple words. Romans 10.9, you want to be saved? You want to be liberated? You want the core? Okay, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And you believe in your heart, God has raised Jesus from the dead. You will be saved. Do you notice? Nothing to do with what I can do or you can do. 
If you surrender your life to Jesus as Savior and Lord, if you admit your sinful condition and you are morally corrupt at your core, if you trust in Jesus in the now and for the life to come, you will be liberated, you will be given freedom, you will be saved, you will no longer have to sin, you will not be under the dominion of sin, and you will be brought into eternal life. The question that comes to you and can bring life or haunt you is best said by the great thinker G.K. Chesterton. Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. Christianity has been found difficult and left untried. What do you do with God's analysis, God's loving declaration about your condition? It will lead you, by the way, to great love and mercy and joy or greater rebellion depending on what you do. Now, for many of us who are watching, we are Christians. I, I just need to ask you, do you actually believe what I just taught? Uh, do you actually, forget what I taught, do you actually believe what the scriptures just said? Are you still believing that basically everyone's okay and good? Are you teaching your kids and your friends, no, we're essentially okay and we're essentially good and we're just a little sick and if, you know, stop it. This is not from God. It's not ultimate truth. Make sure that you read the room through the lens of God's word. Now, as you sit with this, I hope you do this week. As you sit with this really difficult passage. Next week, by the way, it's all good news. It's epic news. It's amazing news. It's like the sun bursts out next week. Next week's like the best meal, but we're not there yet. But as you sit maybe in your connect groups this week or in your walk with Jesus or you're thinking this through, if you really take time to digest the above description, this should lead us to one place. Oh, here it happens again. It's amazing how God keeps bringing this up in this moment. It should lead us as a church and as individuals to profound, grateful thankfulness. That God saved us that Jesus took everything that we have done and placed it on himself so we could know the Father, that we are free, that we don't have to live under the power of sin. See, only when we see ourselves through the last 20 verses do we really understand Romans 5.8. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. One other place in the Bible says, well, we were still enemies in our minds. Well, we were under the dominion of sin. Well, we were under the power of sin. Well, we were not righteous. Well, we did not understand God. Well, we were not seeking God. When we had turned away, when we had no good in us, while our lives and words reflected things like an open grave, poison, cursing, bitterness, while we were quick to shed blood, causing misery, bringing death, not peace, while we did not fear God, Christ died for us. I encourage some of you to turn to Jesus and truly say these words. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. And say, I do believe you rose from the dead. I do believe you died in my place. I want everything you've done to happen to me. Like you've got to take your work and place it on me. You've got to wash away my sin. 
Others of us who are Christians maybe need to repent. Lord, forgive me for not truly believing what your scriptures teach about the condition of humanity. Help me to see the world as you see it. But the greatest thing this week is just a growing, supernatural, spirit-given thank you to keep rising up across Sanctus in this moment. This thankful thing which is connected to worship, which is connected to rebuilding, which is connected to vibrancy, which is the essence of our walk with Jesus. It just matters. So let me just pray these things. Number one, thank you, God, you didn't leave us in our broken, chosen, rebellious state. Thank you for giving us the law that shows us our sin. Thank you for sending Jesus to actually live the law perfectly and also die in our place. Thank you, Jesus, you rose from the dead. Thank you, you died for us while we were still sinners. For those who have not yet embraced Christ, I pray, Father and Son, and the Holy Spirit, open their eyes to the beauty of Jesus, literally as I'm speaking, and may they encounter Jesus. For others, would you begin to convict people across the church of how they actually don't believe this and help them to come under alignment, uh, under, under authority and alignment in the scriptures and live differently? And Lord, I'm asking for a supernatural experience, a supernatural um, uh, birthing almost, even though that analogy... like a growingness, a growing experience of thanksgiving that we just have never had as a church. I pray you would show myself, my family, and this church the significance of how fallen we were and how much you've done. And out of that, may there just be this unbelievable, joyful, spirit-given thankfulness we've never seen before. We pray this in Jesus' name and we said together, amen.